Oh, good morning. My name's Rick. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to start the Old Testament prophet of Amos this morning. Uh, has anybody heard a sermon on Amos before? I've heard very few myself, so I'm excited to, to get into the Old Testament prophet of Amos. And as Rob mentioned earlier, the prophet Amos brings up uh, the idea of God's justice a lot. And so we're going to explore over the next five weeks what that means. And this is an introduction to Amos today and to understand the context of Amos and what's going on so that we can see how God loves and how his justice works. But before we look at the actual text of Amos, I want to help set up what Amos is and how he functions. And to do that, I actually want to first look at Jesus for a moment. When Jesus began his public ministry, he stood up in a synagogue in Nazareth and he read these words, quoting the other, another Old Testament prophet around the same time as Amos, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And so this, when Jesus first started his ministry, this is the opening words that he used to describe what he was about to do. Here's what he says, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was identifying himself with the servant of the Lord. It's a title given within the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 42, it says that this servant would bring justice to the world. Now, most people think of Jesus bringing God's love, God's forgiveness, and God's grace into the world. But maybe less well-known is that God, through Christ, is teaching throughout the Scriptures that a true experience of the love and grace of Jesus inevitably motivates men and women to bring or seek justice in the world. Yes, there is love and grace and forgiveness, but it does something. It brings about justice in the world. But the problem with justice, as we maybe can see in our society today, is that it can be very divisive. It can be dividing. In the 20th century American church, uh, we became divided between liberal mainline churches and more fundamentalist conservative churches. And these two churches emphasized different things. Liberal mainline churches emphasized or stressed social justice, while many more conservative or fundamentalist churches emphasized personal salvation. This means that some of us grew up in churches that said we should bring social justice to our streets and to our neighborhoods by helping the poor and serving the homeless. But we maybe didn't hear as much about how Jesus came to die for God's justice. Some of our churches would say Jesus didn't come to satisfy God's justice at all. He simply came to be an example of doing good in the world. But others of us grew up in churches maybe where we reacted against that breakdown in theology, that incomplete picture of Jesus. And so social justice became equated with denying sound doctrine or spiritual power. So instead of doing justice on our streets or in our neighborhoods, we focused on sermons and prayer and Sunday school. Getting our theology and worship right mattered more than doing what was right. But these things are not supposed to be pitted against one another. They're not opposites. Loving Jesus the Savior who substituted himself on the cross and died for us, for God's justice, should lead us to doing social justice in our communities just as he did. So here's the thing. 
Some people have said that Jesus is an example of social justice, and others have said, yes, maybe, but he's the Savior. And I want to say, he's not only an example to you, he's a Savior. But he's not only a Savior, he's an example. And we have to hold them both together. A concern for social justice isn't an extracurricular add-on to our normal Christian life. And it's not to be seen as a contradiction to the Bible's message. The Bible calls us to do God's justice, but it also then gives us the motivation, the guidance, the inner joy, and the power to actually live a just life. It's not just an example. He actually changes us to have the power to do it. The good news is that today, uh, many younger generations respond with joy to the call to care for the needy. Uh, the nonprofit Times said that volunteerism is the distinguishing mark of an entire generation of American college students and recent graduates. Young adults are leading enormous spikes in applications to volunteer programs. And the Corporation for National Community Service said that this younger generation is more interested in service than any other generation. For many of us who are millennials and younger, there is a real concern for social justice that permeates our work, our volunteer service, our social media posts. However, volunteering isn't quite what Jesus had in mind when he said he came to bring justice. The great question is this, does our social concern affect our personal lives? Does our social concern, our concern about what's going on in the world, actually affect our personal lives, because many of us desire to help people in need. But have we thought out the implications of Jesus' gospel for doing justice in all aspects of life, not just a few extra hours volunteering, but I mean in the way we use our money, in the way that we relate, how we think of the poor, where we choose to work, what neighborhoods we decide to live in, and how we decide to live in them. Have we started to think out that Jesus came to set the oppressed free, he said in Luke 4? What we're going to see throughout Amos is that God's social justice is concerned with our entire life, influencing everything about it, the money, the places we live, who we even seek out as friends. While we may lose enthusiasm at volunteering sometimes, God's call to us is to live out his justice because we live inside his love. God's call to us is to always live out his justice in everything because we live inside of his love. One of the key messages of the Bible is that God did not give us his justice, but instead saved us by his love. He didn't give us what we deserve, judgment for sin, but instead gave us what we don't deserve, grace and new life in Christ. He put his judgment for our sin on Jesus, but then he put Jesus's love on us. That's the change that occurs. But the interesting thing about this message is that while some people have taken it and just become comfortable and said, see, God loves me. I can do what I want. The people who have been most deeply affected by this message that we deserved something other than what we got, those are the very same people who have become the most sensitive to the social inequalities in the world. Seeing others who are getting something they don't deserve, maybe in a bad way, leads us to wanting to give them something we didn't deserve in the first place either, to share the love of Christ with others. Because here's the thing, when you and I see the beauty of God's love for us, it leads us towards doing justice for others. 
And a great place to begin understanding how God's love also means bringing God's justice into the world is this Old Testament prophet, Amos. Because the theme of Amos is the universal justice of God. The Israelites were expecting, as Amos chapter 5 says, a day of the Lord. And that means a day of judgment. They understood that to mean a day when all of their enemies would be brought to justice for the wrongdoing that they had done. So today, uh, we might think, think of the, the enemies of Israel where they were hoping for justice against things like war crimes, genocide, general inhumanity, and brutality. Some of their neighbors in the ancient world were, were very brutal. And what the Israelites didn't expect, though, and what, which Amos brings to them, is not only that there's going to be judgment for, for common inhumanity and brutality, but he was also going to punish his own people for their social injustices. They weren't committing war crimes, but they just weren't caring for the poor person down the street. The shocking thing about Amos is actually that God says they're going to be held more accountable than all the other peoples. That was a shock to the ancient Israelites. In Amos, God is introduced to us as a roaring lion. In chapter 1, chapter 3, he calls him a roaring lion. It's like a lion roars maybe before it pounces on its prey. And the image is pretty stark. It's saying that, that God is warning us like a lion roaring before pouncing on its prey. He's warning before judgment comes. He's giving people an opportunity to turn from their ways. So the first chapter of Amos, which we won't read this morning, but we'll read it a little bit later, but the first chapter can be summarized pretty quickly. There are six nations listed. All of them are neighbors to Israel, and all of them are called to account, and, and God says he's going to judge them for their incredible brutality in war and against prisoners of war, in genocide and in hating certain ethnic groups of people. So the first chapter of Amos, actually, the Israelites reading this for the first time would have celebrated. They would have been saying, yes, our enemies are going to be finally brought to justice. God is going to eradicate that evil from the world. It would be like the French cheering uh, in the streets of Paris on Liberation Day in 1944 after the U.S. and French troops had pushed out Germany who had who'd finally ceded Paris back to the Allied forces. There was a huge celebration because be, having been under a hostile takeover for years, they were finally freed from that oppression. Or it'd be like hearing that the people from your past who hurt you and seemed to have gotten away with it had finally been held accountable for the pain that they caused. The thing in Amos, though, is the celebration would quickly be cut short. Because after chapter 1, the Israelites now find that their own name is on the list of people that God is going to hold accountable. God was going to hold them just as accountable as everybody else because, as Amos shows us, God is a judge, and he's an impartial judge. Though he does have special love, special favor for the people that he saves, he doesn't show them favoritism. And that's the thing that can become real tricky. God gives us his incredible favor, his special love, but he doesn't actually then show us favoritism as if we can get away with more than anybody else. We have special privileges with God, so he doesn't hold us as accountable. It's in fact the exact opposite, that because we are especially loved by him, we are also especially accountable to him. 
this maybe would have been a shock for the Israelites to hear uh, because they had started to confuse, as we're going to see throughout Amos, they're confusing God's favor with God's favoritism. They think that he's impartial to them and he's going to judge everybody else. And he's saying, no, I judge everybody the same. There are no special privileges that because of your race or because of your income or because of your ability or because of your position or your status or your power that give you special favor with God, even if he's the one who gave you those things in the first place. Being loved by God means we're especially accountable to him. Amos 3, verse 1 and 2 is a summary statement of this in Amos. It's a striking verse. Here's what it says if you look at Amos 3, 1 to 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. This is what's so striking about these verses. What do we see? First, the word known, when it says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. The word known in the Bible, when used by God about his people, could also be translated as, if you're reading the NIV, it says chosen. It can mean something like covenant partner. He's saying, only you have I chosen to be my covenant partner. It's essentially, he's saying, Israel is like my wife. I'm married to her, so I have a special relationship with her compared to all other women. You may treat all women equally when you are married, but you do not treat your wife the same as you treat every other woman. She has a special place in your life. And so he's saying, I'm permanently bonded to you. I am permanently with you. There's a promise standing between us, Israel. You have a unique and exclusive relationship with me. This promise is rooted in the special love I have for you in choosing to free you from bondage and oppression in Egypt. That's what he says, right? Verse 1, the whole family I brought up out of the land of Egypt. What he's reminding them of is, don't you remember our love story? Don't you remember our history together? But now you are breaking the bonds of our love. This is why God is so upset with him. This is why he says, hear this word that the Lord speaks against you. And this is why he says, I will punish you for all your sins. You are doing things within the marriage that are breaking the marriage. He's saying, look, you alone are my family. You alone have I chosen to marry. And you have a unique and permanent and special relationship with me. You have received all my love. I withhold nothing from you. But when you break that love, I have to hold you accountable so that we can restore that love and be put back in the right, put it back in the right way. But this seems counter to how you and I think of, of God's love sometimes, isn't it? You're my chosen and beloved people, therefore I will punish you. What? That seems so counter to how we understand love. So either this is wrong or we need a new definition of how we think about God's love. How exactly does God's love work? How is his love connected to this sense of justice? Amos is showing us that these things are directly tied together. God's love and God's justice are tied together. That is the very nature of love for him. So what does Amos show us about the God of love and justice? Four things. God's love is just. God's love hates injustice. God's love has a purpose and God's love has power. 
God's love is just. He hates injustice. He has a purpose, and his love has power. The first thing we want to look at then is God's love is just. You've probably heard this before in 1 John chapter 4. It says, God is love. And then it says that love is from God. God himself is love. It's not that he's loving, which he is, but it's that he is himself the very character and nature of love. And so all love comes from God is the claim. And what does this love from God look like? For many of us, it it might seem to just be a warm feeling of acceptance. But the Bible often demonstrates that when God's love is spoken of, so is his justice. His love looks like doing true, good things for others in the world. Here's just a couple examples. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, Lord. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Or Psalm 33, which Rob read this morning for our call to worship. He loves righteousness and justice. He loves justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Or Psalm 99.4, the king in his might, the king speaking of God, in his might loves justice. Lord, you have established equity, fairness, and you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. The Bible tells us repeatedly that God loves justice and the way in which he operates is just and righteous. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. The God of faithfulness and without sin, he is just and upright. Job 37.23 says, the Almighty, he is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness, he will not violate. In his perfection, God can do no wrong. So he loves justice. He loves doing what's right. Now, let me explain what the word justice is because sometimes it can be difficult to understand. The word justice in the Old Testament occurs more than 200 times, and its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. That's why in, for example, Leviticus 24, 22, it says that Israel must have the same rule of law for foreigners as for native people. Everyone, that means regardless of race or class or where they come from, gets the same equal treatment. That's what it means to be treated equitably. You get the same treatment as everyone else. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, not the melanin of their skin. Regardless of race or social status, anyone who does wrong would be given the same penalty. To be just is to be fair. And because of the court of law as we have it in the United States, we might often think that's justice. Justice is is getting the sentencing for what we've done wrong. It's the prison sentence, maybe, if that's what comes. However, the Bible has another and also more positive side to the meaning of justice because justice does mean more than punishing wrongdoing. It also means to give people their rights. So, for example, Proverbs 31.9 says, Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Throughout the Bible, whenever justice and righteousness come up, several classes of people come up too particularly widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. So Nicholas Walterstorff calls them the quartet of the vulnerable, four groups of vulnerable people in ancient Israel. To take up the cause of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor is to do justice, to take up the cause of another who can't take up their own cause. 
So for example, this is exactly how God is described in the Bible. Psalm 146, God executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are beaten down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrants, sustains the fatherless and the widows, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Or Deuteronomy 10, the Lord your God defends the cause, that is the word cause there is justice. He defends the justice or the rights of the fatherless and the widow, loves the immigrant, and gives him food and clothing. Repeatedly, there are many more examples of this. Repeatedly, we see God's concern throughout the Bible is with these people. Tim Keller notes that it's striking how often God is introduced as the defender of the vulnerable. Have you ever thought about this? How someone is introduced is very significant, right? Recently, a friend of mine asked me to write an endorsement uh, for their book and for their website. And once it was written, she asked me, well, how do you want your name and title to appear underneath your endorsement? And I said, well, Rick Whitlock, CCO campus minister at Purdue University and pastor of discipleship at Purdue Christian Campus House. That's what I spend my public life doing. That's how I'm often maybe introduced. And so how is God introduced? Psalm 68, 5 and 6, I'm a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. I set the lonely in families. This is one of the main things that he does in the world. God's title is defender of people's rights. He identifies with the powerless and takes up their cause. He cares for the most vulnerable in society. He cares to give people their human rights. We might expand the quartet of the vulnerable today beyond widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. We might also Uh, include migrant workers, refugees, the homeless, many single parents or elderly people. The justness of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated on how we treat these groups of people. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members who are most weak or vulnerable in a society is not only a lack of charity, it's a violation of justice. It's not that we just aren't generous enough that we aren't defending the rights of others enough. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power. And he says, so should we. The entire book of Amos assumes that God is a good judge who defends justice. That's the only reason he's calling people to account for their wrongdoing. We know he loves justice because he hates their injustice. So much of the book of Amos is about God's hatred of injustice. We know he loves us because he doesn't want us to remain unjust, but rather to become just, just like he is. That's what God wants. In a way, as one Sri Lankan scholar, Vinoth Ramakandra, says, this is actually scandalous, especially in many times throughout the world. Who was associated with the gods? The elites, the people with, with political power, military captains, and those who were most likely to have wealth. But the outcasts were not. They were considered not blessed by God, not favored by God, because look at their lives. They have nothing. And the God of the Bible is the exact opposite, who says, I have everything, but I associate with those who have nothing. Now, to be clear, God, we already said, is 
does, works for equality. So it's not that God stands against the rich and powerful. He just doesn't give them preference as so many of us do in the social structures of our world. The people with power and wealth are almost always most favored. But the Bible says that God's the defender of the poor. He's not the defender of the rich. It's not that he doesn't love the rich. It's just they don't need as much of a defense. They can pay for it in a way. So throughout the Bible, we see God loves justice, but that means he hates injustice. So that means then that God's love has an element of hate within it because God actually has to hate what isn't love. So second thing, God's love hates injustice. And all throughout Amos, God is speaking, it says, speaking against people, right? We saw speaking against those who are doing injustice. It uses the word transgressions a lot. And the word transgressions means to rebel against or reject an authority. It's a breach, a breaking of a relationship. And as we just saw, God's love and God's law his justice are integrally connected. The law of God is an expression of the love of God. Let me say this again, because so many of us think of the rules as just this overbearing weight, this burden, we just have to try to obey. But I'm trying to tell you that the Bible is showing us these laws are set in the context of the God who loves justice, which means all laws that God gives are an expression of his love. That's what the law is. And so if you try to say, separate the law of God from the love of God, you don't understand the love of God or the law of God. And instead, when we misunderstand, we become those who do injustice because we've separated what God refuses to separate. Why is God mad at them? Remember what he said in Amos 3, 1 and 2. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And here's why he's so upset with his people. That was their story. What he's, what he's saying is, remember this. Remember how you were the least of all peoples in the earth? You were slaves in a foreign land. You worked and you died there under the weight of slavery and oppression. But I came and saved you. But now look at your society. Now that they had come to become their own nation, they had their own wealth, they had their own power, his anger against them is this, that you were people who had the lowest social status, so I defended you. And now you are the kind of people who oppress those with the lowest social status. How can these things be? If you know my love, how could you not share that love with those who were in the same position that you used to be in? This is what God says in Amos 5, verse 7, and in Amos 6, verse 12. He says this, You are those who have turned justice into bitterness. You have cast righteousness to the ground. You have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. What he's saying is, your society has become so self-indulgent, as we'll see as Amos goes on, so self-centered that justice is like drinking a nasty, bitter drink. It helps nobody. It's like you threw it on the ground and trampled on it. When my whole identity as the Lord of everything is to lift justice up. 
How had they done this? Amos 2, chapter 4 through 8 tells us that first they despised God's truth as written in his law, which is about his love, and secondly, that they caused a breakdown. Because they rejected this, it caused a breakdown in their personal lives and in their social justice. Here's what it says in verse 4 and 5 of Amos chapter 2. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even four, I will not revoke the punishment, because... They have rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his degrees, but their lies have led them astray. The same lies after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will devour their strongholds in Jerusalem. Here's the thing. The ancient Israelites are no different than you and I. They are constantly assaulted with competing voices competing vision of what it's like to have a good or right life. It says that they rejected the law of the Lord and did not keep his decrees. And what are many of God's laws and decrees about? Social justice. They are about the way that we treat people. They are about loving the oppressed. But instead, they traded those truths for a lie. Many voices in their community had started to say, come this way, it's a better way. We can live comfortably. Let's go to church, sing our songs, build up our, but also build up our property and wealth as we see fit. And, you know, what is truth anyway? Where is truth to be found? Decide for yourself what's right and true and go get it. That's the kind of society that Amos is talking, speaking into. And so every human being, though, actually faces that choice. Either God's character, the defender of the oppressed, and his word, which spells out to love the, how, how we love the oppressed, are the criteria for what is justice, or else we've come up with our own criteria. Amos is saying when anything other than the word of God is given the supreme place so that we base our lives upon it and guide our lives by it, that lie becomes the source of our truth, and it therefore becomes the breaking of our ability to do justice. When Israel rejected God's truth in their minds, the rejection appeared in their lives. When we don't take in the law of God and the love of God in the way God describes it comes out of us in, every, in the daily ways we live our lives. How do we know this? Because Amos 2, 6, 7, and 8 goes on to describe what this society in Israel had come to look like. Here's what the Lord says, verse 6. For three sins of Israel and even four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine, the wine of those who have been fined. What is Israel being held accountable for? For taking advantage of the poor and afflicted for their own self-gain for using sex, worship, and government corruption for their own self-indulgence. Specifically, here's what these verses say. Verse 6, right? They sell the righteous for silver, human trafficking. Verse uh, 7, they trample on the heads of the poor. They take advantage of the poor by using their lives to advance their own. Maybe they leave poor people in poverty to work at dead-end jobs with no possible advancement while they use what is made to make more for themselves. Verse 7 again, they deny legal justice to the oppressed. The people who already don't have justice are being legally denied justice in courts of law. 
sexual sin, such as womanizing, that's what it's talking about when it says father and son use the same girl, stealing clothing and liquor through government corruption, that's what verse 8 is about, unjust taxes, and borrowing from other people and not returning what's owed to them. These were the trends in their lives. This is why God is frustrated. What we see is that the Israelites had come to be characterized by seeking material possessions, disregarding the rights of others, and promoting their own self-importance by pursuing their own self-advantage at cost to others. That is the very definition of injustice. Uh, Last May, I went to the commencement uh, to see some people graduate. And so Mitch Daniels was speaking, giving his commencement speech. And I really liked what he had to say. I appreciated what he said. And he was telling graduating seniors that while he hopes we never come to think of ourselves in this way, we are essentially, in our society, many who are graduating from institutions like this are like new aristocrats who owe their membership to a privileged and elite group of people, not because of their family name or their wealth or ties to some sort of ruling political party, but rather because of their unusual cognitive skills and their education. He said, America's new aristocrats have begun to cluster together, though, to work with each other, live near each other, socialize with each other, marry each other, have children just like each other's children, and unintentionally to segregate from their less blessed, less well-educated fellow citizens. I'm urging each set of graduates to resist this tendency, to make a special effort to connect with those who never made it to Purdue or would never make it to a place like it. When wealthy adults, for example, have to face uh, decisions in the future to advance our own selves, make our own lives longer while other people are suffering, should we let them? As people with technological skill become more and more the wealthy elite of society, what will happen if people start to view those who don't have those skills as less necessary? Mitch Daniels is really asking questions of social justice. He's highlighting trends in the Purdue community that we might become blind to in our pursuit of self-advancement. We forget, we might forget that so many people could never attend or do well at Purdue. If there is educational elitism in this community, what does it mean for how we treat many others who are not in that position? Could it be that we get so caught up in attaining a certain pedigree, a certain paycheck as a Purdue grad that we miss the ways we might unintentionally leave others behind? Others who might actually need our pedigree and our paycheck to help them have justice, to have them be treated fairly. Among the Israelites of Amos' day, God's love was being corrupted by abandoning mercy to the oppressed with self-love. And instead, what was being cultivated was in the embracing of comfort and self-indulgence. We're going to see more of that as Amos goes on. Essentially this, as I read a really striking comment somewhere, the rich were building luxury on the backs of the poor. Everyone was taking advantage of one another, but God hates this. It's impossible to be right with God and be wrong towards your fellow human beings. You cannot be right with God and then act wrong towards others. Why? Because if I have received the saving love of God, I might also need to receive the painful exposure that Amos brings, that my love and my life in the world don't quite look like God just yet. 
This is the thing, third thing, God's love has a purpose. God isn't just calling people out because he loves to talk about judgment. In fact, the only thing you really see in the entire Bible that God actually gets angry about is sin, is injustice. Because God's love has a purpose, and the Israelites had forgotten that God's love and salvation has a purpose, that as his beloved family, he sets ground rules like all good parents do, so that the family could continue to operate under his love. They had forgotten that failing to live under God's love uh, results in God's discipline. God's love and salvation bring people into his covenant of love, bring them into like a marriage or family type relationship, that permanent love that says, even when you were weak or helpless, even when you were my enemy, I loved you entirely and I'll love you forever. But even though God loves us as we are, he never leaves us as we are. He loves us as we are, but then he never leaves us there. I'll love you entirely and forever, he says, But for this real relationship to to actually happen, it means I want you to choose to love as well, which means you aren't content simply to receive his love and call it a day, but to live his love every day. His love has a great goal, a great purpose, because being loved by God is not intended to induce in us a spirit of moral complacency where we're like, I'm okay, you're okay but rather is to induce in us moral ambition to fight for the rights of others. So here's the thing. When it says throughout Amos that God is going to punish them, it's real. He, he describes it in chapter 2 as it's going to feel like being pressed down as if a lot of weight is on you. So actually, some of the hard things and the pain and the difficulties in your life might actually be because of God's love. It's complex. It might also be because of sin. But in fact, because we sin and because God loves, God wants to deal with our sins. So sometimes he presses down on us. We feel an incredible weight or burden. But does that actually have the purpose of exposing our injustice and revealing to us again the incredible love of God? That God won't leave you as you are. And if you want his love, it means you must let him not leave you as you are. No good parent just says, Do whatever you want, kids. Hope your life turns out well. So what does it mean when he says punishment? Because he didn't just drop punishment on them, but rather is warning them about it, the punishment in Amos and in much of the Bible is actually purification. It's purifying. I'm going to press you down. I'm going to squeeze you and show you that your life is more broken than you're willing to admit, but I'm doing that because I want to purify you, to bring you into the perfection of my love. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5 in the New Testament. For the love of Christ, if you are a believer, if you follow Jesus, if you've received his salvation, the love of Christ now controls us. It compels us because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus died for all of us, and therefore we have died with him. He died for all of us so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. What he's saying is, When you know this love, this love compels you to no longer just love yourself. It compels you to love others. God's reaction to transgression, to rebellion, to sin, to injustice is is judgment. But his deep desire is to provide salvation so that we can be changed. Love, here's the thing, love cares about what the person it loves becomes. 
Love cares about what the person that it loves becomes, right? A wife cares whether or not her husband is becoming good or bad. A parent cares not only that their child should escape pain and suffering, but if they did happen to face pain and suffering, they would have the courage to do so well. We care about what we become. We care about what the people we love become. If we don't, we don't actually love them. If you love someone, you care greatly about who and what they are. God loves you, and so He cares what you become. He cares what your life looks like, and fortunately for us, He has the power to make us become like his love and his justice. And that's the last thing. God's love actually has power. It has a purpose, but he doesn't just say, here's the purpose, go figure it out. He says, here's the purpose, and also, as I change you, it is my power that does that within you. God loves us, but his love is more complex than you and I make it out to be. He, here's the thing. When he points us to a new way of life, he actually works to make that way of life possible. His love isn't just a one-time feeling or a nice thing that calls you to do something better. It's now, I will walk with you every step of the way as you become loving like me. Too often, I think we define God's love in an incomplete way, and so this leads to incomplete justice in our lives. The way we sometimes define God's love strips it of its power. When When we only look at God's love as if it's providential love, think hashtag blessed, then what we're saying is the only way I really think of God's love is based on what I have, which is just another way of saying unless I have good things, good opportunities, good material possessions in my life, I'm not sure about God's love. But when I have those things, I'm blessed. I know what God's love is like. Well, God is providentially providing and caring for us, but there's more. Some of us, though, think that God's love is conditional. We think I have to obey, then God will love me. But that's not actually love at all. That's performance. And so some of us have confused the call to obedience, and we switch the order. And instead of saying, man, God has loved me, so I want to live like him, we've instead said, I don't know if God loves me, so I'll obey to make it happen. No, that's not love at all. And so we're trapped in this endless cycle of guilt and shame. Others of us love to talk about God's unconditional love, and there is truth within unconditional love. But the thing is, we often treat it as in, God loves me as I am, and he leaves me as I am. But we've already seen that God refuses to leave you as you are. His unconditional love actually makes demands on you. And that's what's difficult about it. He doesn't say, you're okay in my eyes. I accept you just because you're you, and I accept everybody. I won't judge you or impose my values on you. Actually, the whole of Scripture is saying, because I love you, I impose my values on you. God's love is complex. It's providential. It's not conditional. It is unconditional, but it has conditions. Too often, our love has little power because we've reduced it to mere niceness or kindness. Surely there is kindness within love. But today, what we often mean by kindness is that we just want nice things to happen to other people and we wish everyone would just be happy. Yet C.S. Lewis pointed out years ago that it is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms. With our friends, our spouses, our children, we are exacting. We would rather see them suffer much than be happy in selfish and uncaring ways. If God is love and he is by definition something, then he is by definition something more than mere kindness. That is why he often rebukes us and corrects us and disciplines us because he doesn't regard us with contempt. 
That's the thing, right? Oftentimes we think that if God's going to correct me or discipline me or rebuke me or call me out, it must be maybe because he doesn't love me. But instead, it's the exact opposite. He only does that because he loves you. If you come to know of sin in your life, and it's often very painful, could you begin by going, oh, here's my sin. It is not good. Man, how much God loves me. Why would he reveal it to you if he didn't care about you? He could just leave you in your sin and you'd never know the difference. But instead, he leaves you in his love so that he can expose your sin and lead you to something far, far better. This is why, uh, why it's, C.S. Lewis would say, you asked for a loving God, you have, a, you have one. It's just that he's paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest and most relentless sense. He refuses to leave you alone. Hebrews 12 puts it this way. How do we gain this power? What is the power to actually love then? Consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation, the encouragement that addresses you as sons of God? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are corrected by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. He chastises every son whom he has received. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as his children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, you become illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respect them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of heaven and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Love holds others accountable. It is exacting. It does make demands without being selfishly demanding. The more intimate and committed the love that we have, the more responsibility connected to it. So here's the thing. When it said at the opening of that Hebrews 12 passage, consider him, it's saying the only way that you will endure when God disciplines is to consider him, Christ, who endured suffering for sin to the point of shedding his own blood, which we haven't done. God might expose our sin, but in Jesus, he crushed our sin. If you really want to do justice then, you actually have to come to know Jesus. But here's the thing, if you really know Jesus, you have to come and start doing justice. Life with Jesus is one of incredible love. It is also one of incredible demand, and it's all because of what he wants us to become. God is spectacularly accepting of you through Christ, yet at the same time, through Christ, he is relentlessly pursuing his lifelong agenda for change in your life so that you love as deeply as he does. If we get rid of justice and judgment, we get rid of a God who hates sin, and we might as well have a God who kind of loves us in general and maybe has some good feeling towards us, but has no power to do anything real in our lives. 
Jesus put himself in the place with the lowest social classes and groups. He became the quartet of the vulnerable. He gave all his power away, which he had, the power of the universe, so that he could give us his status. He's come to lift us up. We who did not receive judgment of God as we should have now care about the justice of God as he does. That is the call to us. It's not a call to just simply be better and improve. It's rather a call to look to Jesus who holds the love and justice of God together so that when he lived, he did right by others and defended their their need, which is exactly why he also died, so that he could defend us in the courts of justice and say, even though they've done wrong, I will pay that penalty for them. We then get to become part of God's love expressed in the world as we do God's justice for the life of the world. You and I have this incredible call. Under the love of God, we live the love of God, which means we do the justice of God with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have uh, called us to this incredible, complex love. We pray that even as we take communion and we think of your love laid down for us in the, in the bread that is broken, your body, the wine representing your blood poured out for us, that you actually gave your life for our injustice so that you could make us just, just like you. How we need you, Lord. We pray that you would uproot lies about your love that is, that is within us. And so you could instead implant the truth of your love so that our lives might reflect your love. We need you to do it. We don't have the power, but we look to the one who is the power. We look to you, Lord Jesus, as we take communion, as we reflect on your ways and on your love. By your grace and by your power, change us to look like you in this world. And we pray this in your name. Amen. As you take communion, if you are under the love of Christ, this is a family meal, and it's a representation that he gave up his life for us. That's the love. But then he died for our sin. That's the justice. I want to put a verse on the screen, actually, as we take this. It's from Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 19. It's a very famous prayer. And I want to encourage you to reflect on it, because typically, we, here's what it says, uh, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, and according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge." Here's the thing, so many times we just read over that and go, height, breadth, length, depth of God's love. Oh, God's love is so big for me. Yes, but what he's also saying is for the rest of your life, you are thinking out the implications of his love because his love can be measured in the way in which we live. To grace, how great death.